This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Most people think of aquaculture as farming fish for food. Some may even realize that many aquarium fish are cultured for the hobby. So what is restoration aquaculture and what role does it play in conservation efforts? My guest today is Josh Patterson, Assistant Professor of Restoration Aquaculture at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, based at the Florida Aquarium's Center for Conservation in Apollo Beach. Josh studies the use of aquacultured species, ranging from fish to corals to seagrass, as a tool for restoring threatened populations and habitat. Join us as we discuss his work in this fascinating area. We'll be right back after these messages. Not pumped about cleaning the litter box? Try World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. That's right, you scoop once and you're done. No chiseling, no scraping, no crumbling, no problem. Looking for fast and easy litter box cleanup? Zero Mess. Try it. You're welcome in advance. Save $2 on World's Best Cat Litter. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Josh Patterson from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, also known as UF IFAS. Hey, Josh, thanks again for being with us today. Hey, good morning, Roy. Thank you very much for the invitation to join you today. I really appreciate the chance to come on here and, and talk about what I do a little bit. So I like to ask my guests some personal info, personal questions, nothing too crazy. Uh, hopefully, we'll get some good insights into what kind of got you going to into the areas that you are working in. What were your earliest fishy memories? So I feel like my earliest fishy memories are probably similar to a lot of people out there. have no idea what age I was, but I distinctly remember having a little Zebco Mickey Mouse rod and reel fishing set and um, spending a lot of time. My grandparents lived on a lake and spending a lot of time baiting that hook with uh, single kernels of canned corn and going after uh, the bluegill that were hanging out up under the dock and that kind of stuff and doing pretty well, as I remember. So it didn't. So just kind of catching fish in a small little contained environment like that is probably my earliest memory of, of fish. So did you have any aquariums growing up and or have a chance to visit aquariums when you were younger? Yeah, I sure did to both of the above. So as far as my own aquariums go, I did have some aquariums. It wasn't a huge passion of mine. I probably had just your sort of basic freshwater aquarium, you know, 10 gallons or something, nothing too crazy. Uh, I do remember specifically a, a firebelly newt that I had for a little while that, that was pretty cool. And then as far as going to aquariums, yeah, um, grew up in Virginia and we would take school field trips 
all throughout my school years with one organization or another. Uh, we frequently would go to Baltimore and we would do a lot of different stuff. But one of the things we always did in Baltimore was visit the National Aquarium. And so that's an aquarium that I have really fond memories of, specifically the rainforest exhibit up on the top and, and some of the fish and stuff in there were really neat. So uh, I'll have to ask, like, what years would that be? Oh, man. See, I have, to, <laughs> I have to do the math on this. So I graduated high school in 2002. So that would be, I don't know, anywhere 6th to 12th grade. So 1998 to 2002, maybe a little earlier than that for some of those trips. Uh, okay. I was just, just wondering because when I was uh, doing externships, I did one at National, but it was like 92. So you were, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would have been, I was eight years old. <laughs> so I probably wasn't there then. Okay. Well, you also mentioned, uh, I think briefly when we had discussed this a little earlier, a goal of being interviewed or assumptions that you would be interviewed on Shark Week after college. <laughs> Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that was definitely, like you said, an assumption. It was really an expectation that I had just being naive, always growing up watching a lot of Discovery Channel and that kind of stuff and always tuning in for Shark Week back before it got, you know, real kind of off the wall. But yeah, I just assumed that I would go to college and study biology and maybe not even study sharks or anything. But um, just, you know, when you graduated, if you wanted to, that, you know, that was a job that was out there and readily available was just to, you know, study these kind of things and, and talk about them on TV. And of course, I didn't realize at the time that most of the people that they were interviewing held multiple graduate degrees and were experts in the field and had published dozens of papers in the field. So it was just some naivete on my part as far as what a realistic expectation was coming out of college. So what made you decide to enter academia and how did you end up at your current position at the University of Florida? Well, as far as my position at UF, I, I really feel like I just kind of got lucky coming out of my PhD and we could go more into that. But as far as entering academia, when I did, I went and did my undergrad in biology at a really big public school. And so there wasn't a whole lot of discussion of the research component of things. A lot of the kids were pre-med and that sort of stuff. And I honestly didn't realize that professors did anything more than came to class and taught and went home. Uh, I think I maybe spent a couple weeks working in a fish ecology lab. And then my senior year in undergrad, I took a graduate class in tropical ecosystems. And we went to Costa Rica as the lab for two weeks. And I was the only undergrad and everybody else was graduate students. So that was sort of my first taste of graduate school. And then after I graduated and started looking for jobs and that kind of thing, I sort of realized I would need a master's degree to, to pursue uh, what it was I wanted to do. If I was ever going to get on the Discovery Channel, I was going to need a graduate degree. So shortly after starting my graduate degree, I had an advisor that was really hands-on. I got to see up close what he did every day. And it didn't take me long to realize that academia and the, and the PhD route was something that, that I wanted to do. So I went straight from my master's to my PhD. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more about restoration aquaculture, but maybe give us a little brief overview of some of the work you did for your graduate degree and while you were up there, including maybe some sure. of the physiology and the alligator gar work. Okay, yeah. So all of my graduate degree was, all of master's and PhD were, um, they were at different places. My master's was at Kentucky State University, which has a really good aquaculture program, uh, freshwater mainly, of course. And then my PhD was at LSU, which also has a good aquaculture program. So it's fish physiology, but it was in the context of aquaculture. So my, for my master's, I studied paddlefish, which is a really neat, ancient fish. Um, they're related to sturgeon. 
And we had a really unique system there of reservoir ranching, but we needed to try to have an estimate of how much these fish were eating when we were releasing them into these water supply reservoirs. So I did some bioenergetics modeling where we looked at energy consumption in paddlefish, um, and I built a big respirometer out of a cattle trough. And then at LSU, I primarily studied Gulf killifish, which we were interested in from a commercial bait fish perspective. But we also, as sort of a side project, did some work with alligator gar, um, which is really cool and something that we're kind of continuing you know, to work with collaboratively with LSU, even here at UF. But we would spawn these fish. We would go catch them from a wildlife refuge, spawn them, and then we would look at things like the way they develop their salinity tolerance because there are coastal populations of alligator gar. Um, and it's not really 100% known whether or not they have to find fresh water to spawn. We know that they're primarily uh, floodplain spawners. So they, they come in on a flood tide and spawn up in the marshes and that kind of stuff. And then we also did some tagging and releasing of aquacultured alligator gar to sort of try to estimate growth in the wild and population structure and that kind of stuff. That was all happening as I was leaving. So I, I can't share any of the results of that work, but it's an ongoing project. Okay, and uh, and you also happened to uh, bring over a uh, pretty cool white alligator gar, from what I recall. I did, yeah. We could thank Craig Watson for that one. So we had <laughs> we had all these baby gar in indoor recirculating systems at LSU, and Craig came over for a visit, and he was just looking in the tanks, and he pointed out that there were a handful that were that were white, or um, they ended up being leucistic, which is not fully albino. They have some pigment, but they've got a loss of of a lot of their pigment. And so that was towards the end of my time at LSU. And that was one of the ways that I got introduced to the program at UF was we ended up growing this fish out and bringing it to the tropical aquaculture lab to be held in quarantine. And it now resides at the Florida Aquarium in downtown Tampa. And it's in their wetlands gallery. And it's a really pretty fish. They're taking great care of it. It's grown a lot. And it's a really healthy, nice looking fish. If you have a chance to get in there and check it out. Cool. So let's talk a little bit more about your work at UF. Can you tell us what you actually do for a living and uh, what restoration aquaculture is? And and I guess how it kind of relates to maybe things that you learned from commercial aquaculture. Yeah, there's some good ties with commercial aquaculture. So, you know, I mentioned coming out of my PhD, I felt like I got really lucky um, getting this job. That was in the sense that the job was available. Coming out of Louisiana with a PhD in aquaculture, I kind of assumed I would end up on a catfish farm in Mississippi or something. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Catfish farms are certainly very important. But um, but this is definitely a dream job in terms of the diversity of different places that I get to work. So restoration aquaculture is basically aquaculture of any – it can be plants, animals, any organism that is grown to restore habitats um, and or species. So you can think of stock enhancement with fish or bay scallops. And then habitat restoration when we talk about seagrass or corals or oysters. And then it's interesting. It really toes the line between private agriculture and and natural resources um, that are part of the commons. So some of the species that we work with are protected. They're endangered species listed or protected at the state level. And as such, we can't commercialize them. So corals, for example, are one that it's illegal to buy and sell Caribbean corals in the United States. So all the corals that are grown for restoration in the U.S. are currently done by universities or nonprofit organizations. 
And so it's done with a lot of volunteer labor and that kind of stuff and, and grants from the federal government or do private donations. On the other hand, with bivalves, so for oysters or scallops, primarily scallops, we don't have a state bivalve hatchery in Florida. So all of the scallops that are spawned for restoration come from private commercial hatcheries. And so that's a really important link. And then another one you can think of is when we're talking about seagrasses or even like Everglades restoration, all of the native plants that are available out there. Um, that's a way that private industry has really stepped up in a big way. There are now native plant nurseries that can get you specific strains of specific species at specific sizes. You can get quotes from six different private companies for um, a specific suite of plants that you need to restore an area. And the same goes with seagrass. A lot of that is done on like a consulting kind of basis. So they're almost consulting firms that will do seagrass and submerged aquatic vegetation restoration. Okay, great. Can you uh, tell us what the Center for Conservation is where you work? Sure. So the Center for Conservation is part of a larger collaborative. The primary partners are the Tampa Electric Company, the Florida Aquarium, and then the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, or FWC. It is adjacent to the larger collaborative is the Florida Conservation and Technology Center. And that encompasses, if any of your listeners are familiar with the Manatee Viewing Center, which is in Apollo Beach, it's the most popular free attraction in Florida. We get like 400,000 visitors between November and April. But all the manatees are come into the hot water effluent off the power plant. And in the wintertime, it's a registered manatee sanctuary. And so we get hundreds of manatees in there when the weather gets cold. And then the Center for Conservation is uh, 20 acres on the southern part of that property. It's connected by walking trails and kayaking trails. And um, the Florida Aquarium uh, was interested in partnering with the University of Florida from the perspective of having a research scientist available to them to help guide some of their conservation initiatives using best available science. So I work with the Florida Aquarium staff here on a daily basis in the coral greenhouse and then also with some of the other projects that they have. And then they also support me quite a bit in the field, which is really nice. So finding divers and things like that is always a challenge because of the specific scientific certifications that we have to have. And then FWC operates a Suncoast Youth Conservation Center out of the site as well, which is a, a really nice. They run summer camps. And then during the school year, um, they have school groups that come in by bus. And so their sort of goal is to create the next generation that cares and so they get kids out, teach them how to fish, teach them how to kayak, um, do some basic water chemistry. They do fish dissections and all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of kids that are not exposed to that kind of thing at all. Um, and so it's a really great opportunity for a lot of the local kids to come here to our site and, and check out sort of what the natural world has to offer. Well, there's a, definitely a lot going on. Now, I want to talk, obviously, about some of your work with corals I think we'll do that in the second half, but before we take a break for that, I would like to know if you can maybe give us a real brief introduction to some of the issues with seagrass, base scallops, and oysters, and, and you know, again, briefly how you're helping with that work. Sure. So, I mean, my role is really more as I leave sort of the large-scale boots-on-the-ground restoration to the people that are better equipped to do that. It's a pretty small shop down here, and really what we try to do is work on the science aspects of, of some of these restorations. So base scallops is an interesting one. Base scallops and scalloping are huge cultural phenomena in Florida. So there used to be commercial and recreational scallop fisheries throughout Florida, um, but it's been really, really constricted due to population declines. And so 
as far south as Hernando County on the Big Bend of Florida, and then it goes up a little bit into the Panhandle, and I should know better exactly where the, the recreational fishery stops, but it's a seasonal fishery. There are still hundreds and hundreds of boats that go out. It's a really popular family pastime. But the state is working, and, and a lot of organizations, really too many to list, are working on bay scallop restoration. I'm primarily working in southwest Florida, but one of the things I'm working on is developing some genetic tools that would allow us to do a parentage analysis where we can take scallops that are spawned in a hatchery and conclusively verify that when we find them later that they're the product of restoration. Um, and those same tools could be used at a statewide level to look at population connectivity and, and how they move around. Um, but the basic premise is just that we spawn scallops in the hatchery and then raise the larvae to a certain stage. Sometimes they're even raised up to like juvenile scallops and then returned back to seagrass beds. Um, so scallops are really obligate for seagrass. And then the seagrass work that we're doing is really just getting off the ground. But what we're hoping to do with that is um, propeller scar restoration. So propeller scarring is a big issue. You can imagine the scallops have to be in seagrass and everybody wants the scallops. So you get a lot of boat traffic in really shallow seagrass areas. And when a boat goes through too shallow of a seagrass area, the propeller can cut a big scar in that seagrass and there are methods out there that are available to um, actively restore that scar. So you can bring it back up to grade, you can plant it, and that kind of stuff. So that's something that we're working on, hopefully doing some of that in the Big Bend area where all the scalloping takes place. And uh, maybe a quick one on the oysters too. Okay. So the oyster oyster restoration is a huge, a huge thing around Tampa Bay especially, but all throughout the state. I mean, I'm right here on Tampa Bay, so I'm most familiar with it here. But what we do for oyster restoration is use basically culch. In Florida, we have a lot of mined shell that we're able to use. You can also use recycled shell from restaurants or seafood processors. That shell, when it's recycled, has to sit for six months basically in quarantine to avoid any sort of diseases or parasites getting back into the system. But in talking to FWC about this, in Florida, we're mostly substrate limited rather than recruitment limited. So if we put out bags of oyster shell, most places on the Gulf Coast of Florida at the right time of year, that shell will be naturally colonized by oyster larvae that are just swimming around in the water column looking for somewhere to land. So I have a specific project in partnership with Hernando County that's funded by the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and NOAA. Um, where we're going to do a, a fairly small-scale oyster reef right off of Hernando Beach. But that will be the first restoration of its kind in Hernando County. So we're really looking to expand the geographic footprint of oyster restoration in order to create those connected habitats that we're looking for. Well, thanks for that brief on, on those other areas that you're working with. We'll talk about corals after this next break. So let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion of restoration aquaculture with my guest, Josh Patterson, after these messages from our sponsors. You think that you're rescuing them, but honestly, they're going to end up rescuing you. You don't know what they've gone through, and they're not going to be perfect. And they are so happy that you are taking a chance on them to be a part of your family. I urge you to go down to your local shelters, pounds, dog rescues, foundations, you name it, and rescue a dog. Once you get your rescue dog, you should definitely order some Dinovite. Go online and order it. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. <laughs> Dinovite. It's awesome stuff. 
90 days of Dynavite will make your dog a happy dog. It will help them with their overall health. You don't need to spend thousands on vet bills. Dynavite is the best thing that's ever happened to my dogs, you know, besides me, of course. <laughs> Call 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Dot com. <laughs> We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Josh Patterson, scientist and faculty at the University of Florida. Okay, Josh, well, let's talk a little bit more now about your coral restoration work. Can you describe in general your take on the plight of the world's coral reefs and the coral reefs in and around South Florida and the Keys? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is <laughs> this is a tough one to talk about. Um, so corals, you know, naturally live in this very narrow environmental range Right, so they can't get too hot. They can't get too cold. Um, they need basically full-strength seawater most of the time, and they need some nutrients, but not too many nutrients. So if if there are too many nutrients in the water, other things will be able to grow and outcompete the corals. But at the same time, the corals do have a photosynthetic symbiont that lives within their cells that does uptake some nutrients. So it can't be a completely you know, nutrient-free environment. And so worldwide, you know, similar to oysters and seagrass and some of these other really critical coastal habitats, we've seen a massive decline in coral cover. And, you know, your listeners might be familiar with some of the bleaching events that happened in Australia. In the last couple of years, they had pretty much two straight years of some of the worst bleaching they've ever seen on the Great Barrier Reef, which is hugely concerning uh, because that's the largest, you know, reef system in the world. And to this point, one of the most functional, you know, remaining systems. Maybe uh, if you don't mind, explain what bleaching is for folks that don't know what that is. Okay, yeah. So I talked about that photosynthetic symbiont that lives within the cells of the coral. The coral itself is an idarian, so they're related to jellyfish, and they can feed what we call heterotrophically, or they can intake nutrients in the form of zooplankton and stuff like that from the environment. But they also, because they have this photosynthetic symbiont living within them, they are able to take advantage of the sun's energy to create sugars that they can use for energy, which is autotrophy. So they're able to to take advantage of both means of getting nutrition. And what happens with bleaching is it's generally associated with warmer than usual water temperatures, but there are other types of stress that can induce a coral to bleach. But basically that symbiosis breaks down on a cellular and tissue level and the symbionts either leave or are, are expelled from the corals. And so that's what gives the corals their color is those symbionts. And so when they leave, you can see straight through to the white skeleton of the coral. And so it's called bleaching because the entire reef, if it's bad enough, will just appear white in color. Okay, great. Now, can you tell us a little bit about which coral species you work on uh, predominantly and why? So yeah, with restoration aquaculture in Florida, in the recent Florida are, I would say, in the particularly dire straits, uh, more so even than some other other areas in the world. And in Florida, historically, there were two acroporid species. Acropora is the genus, and they are branching corals that historically were really spatially dominant on the reef. So you had big swaths of coverage where it was just staghorn coral, which is one of the acroporas, or elkhorn coral, which is the other one. They do also naturally hybridize, and so there's a third called prolifera. 
But anyway, when you talk to people that were diving in the Keys in the 60s, they say, oh, you have to swim through the staghorn coral to find the interesting corals, you know. But that's really shifted. So those were the first two species that were listed on the Endangered Species Act in 2006. They're listed as threatened. And they've been adopted in aquaculture specifically because we developed good methods for culturing them in ocean-based nurseries. They grow really fast. And staghorn coral, Acropora cervicornis, was the primary species that's been used. You could take a five-centimeter fragment. They reproduce naturally just by breakage. So you can take a five-centimeter fragment and bring it into a nursery. And within six to 12 months, you can have a nice 100-centimeter or more colony that you can then divide it and take back out to the reef and outplant. So we're working more and more with elkhorn coral, as well, which is the other acropora species. And then some of the slower growing um, boulder corals were also starting to work with in terms of restoration. Now, I know you're working on a kind of coral repository. And, you know, I know that that's important. Can you explain maybe what that is and also mm-hmm. why uh, knowing uh, genotype and phenotype and, and explaining what those are as well for corals is really important? Yeah, definitely. So to start with the repository, that's a a collaboration that I'm involved in with the Florida Aquarium and also the Coral Restoration Foundation, which is a a large not-for-profit that's headquartered in Tavernier down on Key Largo. Uh, That is probably one of the oldest and largest not-for-profits that's been involved in coral restoration. So as part of the, because these species are listed on the Endangered Species Act, they have come up with a recovery plan to get these species off of the Endangered Species Act. It's something that is a long time down the road. (laughs) It's certainly not something that's going to happen in our lifetimes. But one of the things in that recovery plan is actually land-based nurseries to maintain the genetic diversity of the species in sort of, as you said, a repository or an archive, a living genetic archive on land. Because we'll have these periodic events. For example, 2010, we had a, a big cold spell that killed off a lot of the, not a lot, but killed off some of the remaining genetic diversity of staghorn coral that was held in nurseries. So there were entire genotypes, and I can talk more about that. There were entire genotypes that were lost in that cold spell event. So had we had them in a land-based nursery, we would have been able to take them back out to these ocean-based nurseries and grow them back out rapidly, and um, potentially they wouldn't have been lost. So working with the Florida Aquarium here at the Center for Conservation, we are actively Uh, starting to archive genotypes that are maintained by the Coral Restoration Foundation um, in their ocean-based nursery. And so what genotype is, I think of genotype as, at this point, what it mostly is, is just we know that this line of corals is genetically distinct from another line. So they're all the same species, but you can think of them like this one's Bob, and this one's Mary, and this one's Ruth. Right. And Bob has brown hair and he's six foot four and Mary has blonde hair and she's five foot two. So they have different. And and so those things would be the phenotypes. So they're all people um, or they're all corals, but they have different characteristics. So some in in terms of corals, they're not going to have different colored hair, obviously, but um, they might grow at different rates. They might have differential thermal tolerance. Um, So some might bleach easier than others. And they also may have some differences in disease resistance. Uh, this is not work that I've done, but but other researchers have started to run assays where they're exposing, systematically exposing different genotypes to disease and, and finding that there are a certain subset that are resistant to disease, um, which is a big problem. 
Okay. Now, you don't name all your corals, though, right? I'm just verifying. No, that. no. They're 56 and 27, <laughs> and <laughs> okay. they, have, they have numbers. But That's we do. Good. it's funny. You do get to know them, you know? I mean, and there's some big, robust, thick ones, and there's some little spindly ones and, and that kind of stuff. So can you tell us, you mentioned it in kind of in passing, but what are some of the really common ways that corals are aquacultured for this work? Sure. So the probably the primary method that's used today in the Keys and the broader Caribbean um, was developed by the Coral Restoration Foundation, and it is this tree nursery. So it looks like a big tree underwater. It's anchored to the bottom and then floated with like a subsurface buoy. And there are these horizontal branches that come off of a central axis, and the corals are hung from the branches. And um, they seem to do a lot better. They grow a lot faster. We actually did a study where we did a direct comparison using trees, and then there's a block method where they're basically just attached. It's, It's more complicated than that, but they're attached to cinder blocks that stay on the ocean floor. And so uh, these trees have really allowed us to grow a lot more coral a lot more quickly. And then another, I mentioned the boulder corals earlier, and this is a technology that's been developed by Moat Marine Laboratories, a tropical research lab down in Summerlin Key, who I also work with. Um, but they've developed this micro-fragmentation approach. The problem with the boulder corals is they grow much slower than the staghorn coral or elkhorn. Um, so it takes years and years and years to get a coral, you know, the size of your palm. But they've discovered that you can cut off basically individual coral polyps, really small pieces. And there's some sort of response there where they start growing a lot faster, sort of they're in recovery mode. And if you do that with the same coral, with the same genotype, they will fuse back together. So they're able to, to really greatly increase the rate at which these corals grow um, and make it feasible to do restoration that can have an impact, you know, on the scale of years instead of decades. Now, can you tell us a little bit, I know you've got graduate students, maybe a little bit about the work you and your students have done in the Cayman Islands comparing some of the wild and the restored corals. Yeah. So Katie Lore is a graduate student that's been with me for almost three years now, I guess. And she went, this was last summer, she made three separate trips to the Cayman Islands working with the Central Caribbean Marine Institute, which is another nonprofit. Katie actually worked with them before she came to me and she helped them start one of the first, coral, well, the first coral nursery, I guess, in the Cayman Islands. But what's really neat about Cayman as opposed to the Keys, Little Cayman specifically, is they have within 400 meters of shore, they have this really distinct terraced reef system where you've got three distinct depths that have different coral reef coral communities. And staghorn coral, the primary species we work with, is found in all three of those reef zones. So everything from really shallow to just a couple of feet, you know, to the next zone, which is where the nursery is located, which is probably about 30 feet deep. And then even the the third zone or the sort of four reef area is about 50 to 60 feet deep. And so a lot of corals aren't that much of a generalist, but the staghorn coral is found throughout all three of those reef zones. And we did some surveys to sort of verify that and look at differences in how the colonies appeared between those different zones. And then we did an experiment to take corals from that common nursery in the middle zone and outplant them in a controlled way across all three reef zones. And what we found was, I guess not surprisingly, that the corals that were planted in the same zone that they were grown in did really, really well. They grew a lot, um, they survived well, etc. And these were tree-grown corals, so they're suspended in the water column when they're being aquacultured. Um, when we took them into the shallow zone where there's a little more wave energy, we experienced a lot of breakage. So the corals didn't necessarily die, but they basically were just little nubbins. 
um, we actually had negative growth in that zone. So they got smaller, which was interesting because there are wild colonies of the same species right next to them that are doing just fine. So that's something to consider when we're siting nurseries is that if you want to restore a shallow areas, you might want to consider growing your corals from the start, you know, maybe in a, in an attached bottom attached method. And then when we plant them in the deep zone, um, we experienced lower survival and we had, it was interesting. We had about 40% of the corals that, that died off within a month. Um, and we didn't know what to attribute that to. There was no visible disease. Um, but for whatever reason, when we moved them to a deeper area, um, the ones that survived did okay, but we had pretty good amount of mortality there. So that's something that's, that we're continuing to look at is the reasons for some of that. Okay, that's really interesting. Could that be due to maybe the numbers of those symbionts, those anthelae, or maybe the type, you know, at the different steps? Yeah, definitely. So the, the symbionts are not a static thing. And so we know now that there is genetic diversity within the symbionts as well. And they come and go and that kind of stuff. It's a pretty stable symbiosis, we think. Obviously, when they bleach, it's no longer stable, but they definitely are attuned to certain wavelengths of light and that kind of thing. So it, it's possible that the symbionts in the higher light environment were not well suited to, to when we moved them. We've done some subsequent work that makes us think that light might not have been the factor that, you know, they seem to acclimate pretty well to different light regimes pretty quickly. So there could be some other factors going on there. It's very complex. There's a lot of stuff going on. I uh, heard you give a talk recently, and you were talking about some more kind of cutting-edge areas that you and your students were looking at. Uh, I think you mentioned metabolomics, for example. Can you maybe touch briefly on, on that or related new technologies? Yeah, I guess metabolomics is probably the one that I'm most familiar with, and even I'm not that super familiar with it, but it's something we're interested in looking into for sure. Because So you have, if you've heard of genomics, right? So that's looking at the entire genome and all of the genes that are present. That's pretty static. So in theory, the genome should be the same in all of these, in these lines of genotypes. Each genotype should have the same genome because it should be a clone of, of the rest of that genotype. The metabolome is downstream from that. So when you have genes, they get transcribed into RNA and translated into proteins, and then those proteins go and do things, right? They're involved in all sorts of different cellular processes. And the result of those cellular processes is the metabolome. So it's things like sugars, individual amino acids, and really smaller molecules that are the result of whatever that organism is doing. And one of the interesting things that we've observed is that we are now taking the same genotype and planting it. Not, I say we, you know, other people working on this are taking the same genotype and planting it across a different, a range of different environments. And so, and what we see is differential survival and, and success. So a genotype that does really well in the upper keys might not do well in the lower keys, for example. And genomics can't tell us much about that because the genome should be the same. However, metabolomics and the metabolome is is much more influenced by the environment. So we're thinking that we might be able to look at the metabolome for some clues as to why the same genotype does well in one environment and poorly in another. We're also interested in looking for metabolic signatures of these specific phenotypes that we see. So if in a given environment, we see that this genotype is, is relatively thermally tolerant, those studies take a long time to do, <laughs> and they're really involved, and there's no way... Like, for example, the Coral Restoration Foundation houses in excess of 150 staghorn coral genotypes, and Moat has, I think, in excess of 60 or 70. Um, so there's no way that we can run studies to screen 
all of those genotypes for different phenotypes. So we really need to develop tools. And the tools are going to be genomics, metabolomics, looking at how related these corals are to each other. It's not going to be one thing. I don't think you're ever going to be able to just take, say, okay, this metabolic signature means this coral is thermally tolerant or disease resistant. But it's something that in combination with all of these different technologies, we're working towards trying to be able to take a one-off sample of a coral and try to predict some of its characteristics. Now, I know you get involved with the the big coral spawning event in the Keys. Can you kind of maybe tell folks a little bit about that and also maybe some of the work you did with looking at substrate, why substrate for larvae is important? Yeah, for sure. So we've been talking a lot about uh, genotype and how it's important and that kind of stuff. One of the reasons it's so important to understand the genotypes we have is that we're having a hard time making more of them. <laughs> so I think most ecologists agree that coral recruitment in terms of larval recruitment is, is at or near zero in the keys. And I guess I should explain. So there's two ways these things reproduce when I'm talking about staghorn coral. They are asexually reproductive where you just break a piece off and if it finds the right environment, it will continue to grow. And obviously there you're just creating a clone. So you're increasing coral biomass but you're not increasing the genetic diversity of the population. And then they also spawn. So they are hermaphrodites. Each polyp releases bundles of eggs and sperm. And in nature, if there's enough density of, of spawning corals, those things will float to the surface of the ocean. They'll break down, they'll fertilize, and they create these little peanut-shaped larvae that we call planula. And that planula, every single planula is a brand new genotype that did not exist before. And so those planula, in theory, if the environment is right, find a good substrate to settle on and metamorphose into an individual polyp, which grows over time into a colony. Working with the Florida Aquarium, we <laughs> I don't know if you even call it success. A couple of years ago, we had a single sexual recruit that survived and is still growing at the aquarium um, in downtown Tampa. And that's really, to this point, the oldest sexual recruit that I'm aware of in this species. Now in Palmata, there've been some published accounts of, you know, a handful of, of surviving recruits um, being put back out in the wild. So these things also only spawn once a year. And so since I've been at UF, we've worked in partnership with the Florida Aquarium and the Coral Restoration Foundation to go down to the Keys every year. And it's, it's a really nice setup because these things, Coral Restoration Foundation lets them grow big enough in their nursery, a subset that they will spawn in the nursery. And so we've got all these known genotypes that are tagged with their genetic identity, and we can have them all in one central location where we set nets over them and collect their sperm and eggs and do crosses and that kind of thing. So it's a really nice, as opposed to some of the people I know that, that work on Palmata where they're collecting natural spawn off the reef, you know, they might be miles or hundreds of meters apart when the corals spawn and they've got to rush to get together and, and do the fertilizations and that kind of stuff. So it's a really nice setup. And then we bring them back, and yeah, we've done some work working with Carrie O'Neill at the aquarium. We did another experiment this year looking at the different substrate properties that these coral larvae need to settle and what the settlement cues are. So um, there's crustose coral and algae. There are microbial biofilms. The orientation of the tiles that we settle them on might be important. And so there's just a lot of questions to answer there, but we only get one shot a year. <laughs> so it's a little problematic. Um, and we just don't, we haven't yet figured out how to get really good survival from the sexual recruits. They're very vulnerable. Well, that sounds like a, a lot of fun and, and definitely some really fascinating work. Uh, before we kind of close up, do you have any words of advice for students interested in getting into this line of work or area? 
Um, I mean, what I always tell students, I feel like, again, I feel like I got really lucky and I got into a really fun field. But if you are a student in science and you're interested in research, I always tell people that you have to be just as happy if you're studying microbes in Antarctic ice sheets as you are if you're studying coral reefs or something like that. It's You really first have to be passionate about the scientific process and using science to answer questions. And then once you, once you have that passion or you've developed that passion and the skills to pursue it, just kind of see where it takes you and it'll probably lead you to, to some pretty cool places. So I guess that would be my advice is to focus on the scientific process first rather than sea turtles or corals or any specific aspect of the natural world. Well, that's really, really good advice. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I wanted to thank our guest again, Josh Patterson, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. And I guess just in general, Josh, any final words of information or wisdom for the whole listening audience? I mean, if the core restoration stuff that I've talked about is interesting to you, definitely look up um, some of the partners, you know, the Florida Aquarium, Core Restoration Foundation, Moat Marine Lab. There are lots of others. That's only a handful that I work with. Um, there are certainly lots of others, but most of us would be more than happy to talk to you about what we do. And there's lots of also volunteer opportunities with those not-for-profit groups as well. Thanks again, Josh, for joining us. That was really, really great information. Please be sure to check out Josh's relevant web links, which will be found on his Aquariumania guest page. And I encourage all of you to visit my Aquariumania blog on Pet Life Radio. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at PetLifeRadio.com. Until next time, stay tuned for Josh and his students and colleagues' work in restoration aquaculture. Keep an eye out and ear out for any additional news. And of course, please be sure to visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish and corals healthy. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.